Hello again, everyone. Today we're doing the show a little differently. That's because, well, I've been thinking a lot about the conversations we've had so far on this podcast, and there's something I'm really trying to understand, and it's this. How is it that under the most dire circumstances, some people are able to to bounce back more than others? I mean, we all have the capacity for resiliency, but some people, well, they just have a, a way of weathering life storms. And I got to wondering, what exactly do they have in common? What makes them not just endure, but thrive, and maybe even become heroes in their own stories? I asked that of my guest today, the man many consider the premier life coach, Tony Robbins, and this is what he had to say. They're always growing. They're always looking for the edge. And they're realizing, I need to participate in my own rescue here. i got to take my game to another level. As you'll hear in a bit, Tony learned from his own life. He had plenty of personal challenges to face before taking his game to the next level. And he's not alone. After Tony, I can't wait to introduce you to two people who have literally taken their games to the next level in order to heal themselves. The ultimate win. Here's a little preview. I didn't learn how to swim until after I lost my arm. It took, you know, losing a limb for me to push those ba- those physical boundaries. Michael and Anna, they're truly astounding because each of them, having lost limbs in terrible accidents, went on to find great inner strength as athletes in the Invictus Games, an awe-inspiring international sporting event for wounded service personnel. And as you'll hear, they embody everything Tony Robbins teaches and what this podcast is all about, finding unexpected resources of courage, wisdom, and inner strength, no matter what life hands us. So, on today's show, a look at what it takes to hang tough, to be not just a winner, but a warrior. You can feel it in your heart, feel it in your soul, everybody's got a little something, something that makes them feel gold. I'm Robin Roberts, and this is my podcast, Everybody's Got Something, a phrase my mama used to say. And for me, it's become a motto to live by, because everybody, I am talking everybody, faces a life challenge at some point or another. So not only have I been wondering what it takes to be the kind of person who stands back up after being knocked down, I've been wondering what it takes to be this guy. The number one thing that's going to change your life, the only thing... That will change your life, change your business, change your money, change your relationship, is you must raise your standard. That is my friend Tony Robbins, speaking at his recent Leadership Academy. And if for some reason you don't know about Tony, let's just say he's like having a flashlight in the dark. I mean, just five minutes with him and he illuminates everything. And in a conversation we had recently, he shared some of that amazing advice. So I guess I'll just start by saying he's really a man who needs no introduction. Except I gave him one when we met. He's the go-to advice guy for people like, oh, President Clinton, Oprah, Serena Williams. However, he also helps people that aren't playing in the Olympics or, you know, solving world problems. He wasn't always writing best-selling books and helping world leaders. 
He's here today to talk about his journey to becoming one of the most successful people in the game. In the game. Are you in the game? It's quite a buildup. <laughs> oh, it's and well worth it. Well worth it. Thank you. Tony, thank Good you. To see you thank you. It's, it's wonderful thank to you. see you. You know, every morning before Good Morning America, I read an inspirational quote of yes. some sort. And there's one that really reminds me of you, and you helped me do this. It says, Don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. That's true. Good is the enemy of the great. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And the reason I say it reminds me of you, Tony, I was living happily ever after at at ESPN. Yes. There was a goal that I had set for myself to be a sports journalist. So I'm at the da-da-da-da-da-da, the worldwide (laughs) leader. And I realized there's there's just more I want to do. Mm. And I started following you. I read The Giant Within, your yes. book, and you helped me get those tools mm. to be here with you today and to be on Good Morning America and to do the things I'm doing. So well, I appreciate the compliment, but you did the work. <laughs> but, you, <laughs> but you give people the tools to yes, do I the did. work. Yeah, but, let, but let's start at the beginning because this is about everybody's got something. What was your something? What was that something you had to overcome early in life? Um, you know, part of it was just my uh, family. You know, I had four different fathers. My mom was quite a handful, <laughs> love her to death. And without her, I wouldn't be who I am. But she was a prescription drug abuser and alcoholic, and she was very violent. And I was 5'1", believe it or not, when I was a sophomore in high school. So she would smash my head against the wall until I bled or pour liquid soap down my throat saying I was lying when I wasn't until I threw up. It was pretty brutal. But I became a practical psychologist because of it. I had to learn how to manage her. I had to protect my younger brother and sister, five and seven years younger. And... I look at it today and say if my mom had been the mother I'd hoped she'd been, uh, I wouldn't be the man I am today that I'm proud of. So I had to find answers, and it drove me. And because I suffered so much, I hate suffering. I, I do anything to help somebody not suffer and to live a life that they deserve. You say that, and the way you talk about it, about the things that your mother did to you, and you can still say in your heart, you know, she was doing the, the best that she could, but yeah. a very a, abusive mother. And at the age of 17... You finally had enough. Didn't she come running at you with scissors? Oh, she chased me out with a knife, yeah, on Christmas Eve. Um, But I didn't think she was going to stab me, honestly. It was more like, okay, this is my chance at freedom. So I went and slept on the mountaintop in the rain. So then I went to a friend's house and lived in their laundry room for a couple of days. And I changed my life by reading. I, you know, I had this belief that leaders are readers. And I knew I had to feed my mind because I was so depressed and so overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I took these set of buses to this bookstore. It was about 13 miles away. And, and had this book called The Magic of Believing by Claude M. Bristol. And that was the first book I read. And then it was every day I was going to the library in those days. There was no internet. I'm that ancient. Um, <laughs> and I was feeding my mind. And then I'd work on my body to get strong because the mind and body work together. And, and then I started finding answers and started, you know, I changed myself and then my friends saw that and I helped them. And I was Mr. Solution in high school, especially if you were a girl, I was especially motivated. Oh, what, to help. oh no. Well, uh, what, what do you mean by that? You have a little twinkle in your <laughs> well, you eye. Got, you got a little problem with your boyfriend. I'll help you out. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, it really, right. I became my identity to help people. And, but I had to help myself first. And whenever I found something really worked for me, I could congruently, passionately help somebody because I'd done it for myself. And to go from where you are just describing and you became a janitor, great. Yep. You know, I yep. don't care what you do. You're, yep. you know, you're working. That's a, that's a great thing to do. To go from that yep. to what you're doing now, give yep. people some of the <laughs> steps because there are people that are in a, a, a situation and they, they do want to better themselves and they, yep. and they hear you, but they want to know how can they apply it to their situation. You have to work harder on yourself than you do on your job. 
you have to become a more valuable human being. And, you know, we all, most people are looking to what they can get. If you can shift that to what can I give and develop yourself so that there are things you can give, then there's no limit to what you can achieve or what you can create in your life. But, you know, most people, and I did this as well, completely overestimate what they're going to do in a year and then they're disappointed, but they underestimate what they can do in a decade or two or three, as you and I both know, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're not here, like we talked earlier, it's not your first rodeo. It's not my first rodeo either, right? So, you know, you got 38 years doing something with 100 countries with 50 million people. I could be an idiot and I'd have to see there are patterns that change people's lives, patterns that make you crazy, patterns that make you successful. And I've spent my life realizing nobody's broken. They don't need to be fixed. There's just patterns that need to change. And you can do those often in minutes, which people don't believe is possible until they witness it. But when you take a Serena Williams to turn it around or you turn around a President Clinton, that spreads like wildfire. Sports teams spread like wildfire, as you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that was really my signature, get results and then that builds a reputation for me, and then the reputation opens more doors, and then it just becomes a virtuous cycle if you keep adding value to people. It's like the who's who from the business world, from the sports world, yes. uh, former presidents, uh, on down the line. Yes. Is there something common with all of these uber-successful people? Do they have issues with self-esteem, with fear? Everybody has fear. Everyone's afraid in some context that they're not enough. They're not pretty enough, smart enough, handsome enough, funny enough, rich enough, young enough, old enough, something enough. And the deeper fear we have is we're not enough, we won't be loved. And I I don't care if I'm talking to the President of the United States or CEO. Now, you might not be feeling that right now because your life right now might match your expectations. But at some point, you're going to get triggered. So everybody has that. But what overcomes it for those successful people is hunger. If you said, what's the one character trait of the most successful people in the world because they're all so different? Intelligence is incredibly valuable. You, you know, I'm not blowing smoke. You're an incredibly brilliant woman. And I think intelligence is incredibly valuable. But I know a lot of intelligent people can't fight their way out of the paper bag. (laughs) If you are hungry and you don't lose that hunger, which I've seen in you and Mm. it's alive in me, you know, most people are hungry to lose weight to get to the party or to look good in a swimsuit for a month or whatever. But the people that never lose their hunger are the people I deal with. And I usually see people at two extremes. They're the best on earth and they want an edge. The reason they're the best is they're always growing. They're always looking for the edge or they're having an issue. They're having a birthday with a zero on it. They're having a divorce. Their kids are leaving the nest. Um, You know, they're starting a business and they're realizing I need to participate in my own rescue here. I got to take my game to another level. I'm not willing to settle anymore. And I really believe in life. We get what we tolerate. And most people think about tolerating other people. I mean what you tolerate in yourself. When you raise the standard of what you will no longer settle for, your life will change. I have never heard it like that, Hmm. what we tolerate. Yeah. And when you think of it like that, um, it just all comes crystal clear. To me, um, it does, too. It, it, it really does. Yeah. So when you're working with all these different people and you decided this last year, and I was, I was hungry for you to write another book because <laughs> yeah, I read I the, first, uh, the, you know, the first two. And then I was surprised. I was like, money? Huh? Yeah. The money game? Yeah. It is a game. Yeah, and you is. were very upset about what we all experienced in 2008. Yeah. And you went to the smartest people, and that's what you put in this book? I thought if I could interview 50 of the smartest people in the world and then simplify that so anyone could achieve their goals, I'd have something really valuable. And, and it's been just an amazing journey, what I've learned. The system is racked. It's, it's an abusive financial system. There's very few places in the world where you could get by with the things that people get by with in the financial area. So what I really want to do is turn people from the chess piece to the chess player. And really, you have to do certain things, but you don't have to know everything. And if you understand certain fundamentals, you can completely change your financial world. You said it's rigged. 
And so why not? So we know that. So why not figure out the game and make it and make it work for us? Exactly. And most people just go, it's rigged and they give up and you can't afford to. And anyone can win the game today by following not me, because none of this book is about me, not your local guy that wants to sell you a product. By, by really, first of all, educating yourself on the best in the world and then getting a fiduciary, getting somebody who's legally required to put your needs ahead of their own. We live in a financial world where the majority of people, wealth managers, investment managers, they're really just brokers and they're nice people and they, they mean well, but they represent the house and the house always wins. Mm. They're selling you products. They're not giving you advice. The advice is only to sell you the product and the product has built in fees that melt people. Here's something all of your listeners should know. For every 1% in fees you pay because of the compounding, right, that's a decade of income you're giving up in retirement. So the average person buys a mutual fund, right. and it's, the average mutual fund is 3.12 in terms of actual cost. That's the average. And most people think they pay less than 1% because there's 17 hidden fees in that 50-page document, right? Well, what is 3% versus 1%? If you had $100,000 and you're 35 years old and you put it in the market and you let it just sit there, and grow, and it grew at 7% a year, guess what? At 65, 30 years later, that 100000 is worth $761,000. Pretty nice since you added nothing to it. Sure. That's if you paid 1% in fees. If you paid 3% in fees for the same product, the same investments, the same companies, but you have a firm that charges you 3% in fees, you have $432,000. In other words, you have 71% more money if you pay 1% in fees for the same product. Or another way of describing it is you have 19 years less income on 3%. Ouch. You're going to run out of money at 74 instead of 95. So I tell people you've got to get a fiduciary. And what is it about finance? We don't want to talk about it. Everyone gets a little and and, and what you're saying. and Because uh, it makes us feel like we're not enough. Why? 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 Because most of us don't put our focus there. I mean, look, I've met so many brilliant business people that are horrific on the investment side. You know, to, to sometimes the most intelligent people are terrible investors because they overanalyze. If by the time you've overanalyzed something, everybody else knows it too, and it's too late. So to be a great investor, you have to have a different mentality. And most people are just not taught these principles. Most of us learn our businesses on the job, right? We, true. You know. True. So you can't afford to learn on the investment side on the job. You know the old phrase that says, "When a person with experience meets a person with money, the person with the experience ends up with your money." <laughs> right? right. So what I'm trying to do is give people the experience up front, so that doesn't happen to them ever again. Who inspires you? You inspire so many. My wife inspires me. She's one of the greatest human beings that I know of on the planet. Greatest. I give up everything for her, and I don't fortunately have to because we live the same mission. But I, I'm inspired by people that do the right thing. I was uh, in San Francisco, and, uh, and I, would, I looked in the paper, and I saw there's a group of nuns in the Tenderloin District, which is the mm. toughest part of San Francisco, that are feeding the homeless, and they were being evicted, and they're going to be homeless themselves. And no one was doing anything about it. I couldn't believe it, so... I drove to meet these nuns. I sat down with them. I said, explain to me the problem. They said, the owner wants to sell this, and he's kicking us out. So I said, let me help. And I went in, and I negotiated with the owner and let him know the, the media impact of what he's going to do is going to mm. kill him. And so I know he's not wrong to want his own building, but give me a year with them, and I'll help them move. And then I gave him $50,000. And then I got so inspired by them because I was hanging out with these nuns. And it, all they, they live in this little room. I mean, the room is not even 400 square feet, four of them, right. no windows. And every day, all they do is get up. They don't just feed people. They're loving on these people. So I bought them their own soup kitchen. I, you know, I put $800,000 out, and I just said, you know what? This inspires me because these people are going to continue to do this as long as they're living. Mm. They care that much. So it's, it's incredible to be in a position in my life that when I see people that inspire me, 
I can do something. Or, you know, last year we fed, I fed 42 million people in my life. I started with two because I was fed when I was 11 and then four and they got to a million. And then for 10 years, I fed 2 million people myself and my foundation fed two. So I fed 4 million people a year. So I went to Feeding America. That's the best organization for feeding people in, in the country. And I said, if I gave you all the rights to my book in advance, I got $5 million advance. Uh, how many people can I feed? And they told me, and I want to feed more. And then it grew. And I finally just put up matching funds, wrote additional dollars, and we fed 102 million people. And now I'm hooked. So I'm going to do it again this year. And then my goal is uh, to feed a billion people over the next 10 years. A billion people yeah. over the next 10 yeah. years. And it yeah. can be done. Yeah, it will be done. And it, <laughs> it will be done. Yeah. This is what, um, what draws so many people to you, Tony. Your philanthropy. Yes. The, you work in prisons. Yes. You work with uh, those that are homeless. Yes. Those, uh, you know, all the proceeds from the book, as you just mentioned, going to, to feed. And how does, um, I remember Oprah saying this to me. Um, she said that when she's having a bad day, because everyone always thinks, oh, Oprah yeah. can't have a bad day. Yeah. Tony can't have a rock. Yeah. yeah, we do. Yeah. She says she does something good for someone else. Totally agree, 100%. It's what, what I've taught people from the beginning. When I was first kicked out of my house, I came up with this little mini plan. Okay, so I'm interrupting here because Tony laid out a four-part plan that has guided him throughout his life. And I'm going to break this down a little for you because if you haven't noticed, when Tony gets on a roll, it can go by really fast. And you don't want to miss any of this. So here it goes. Step one. So the first one was, I'm going to feed my mind every day for a minimum of 30 minutes. No matter how busy I am, I'm going to go read a book. I'm going to listen to some audio. I'm going to feed this mind, not hope that, you know, good thoughts show up. Step two. Then it's, I'm going to work out every day, even if it's 10 minutes, but an intensity, like a sprint, like go lift some weights. But like every day, get myself out of my fear because fear is physical. So is courage. So I, I put that blood pumping and then your brain works differently. And here's step three. Get clear of what I wanted, find a role model and take massive action. <laughs> And then the real kicker. And my fourth step was, now let me find somebody who's worse off than I am and help them. And helping them, even when you have no money, you can help them with your time. You can help them with a caring. Yes. You help them with a smile. And that got me out of myself. You only suffer when you obsess about yourself. People say, no, I'm suffering. I feel stressed because it, most people don't call it suffering. They call it stress, frustration, overwhelm, anger, loneliness, depression, but suffering. The way out of it, help somebody else. The way out of it, find something you can appreciate, something you can enjoy, something you can learn from. Love somebody, give something, because I think love is an action. And if you do those things, your suffering disappears. Okay, that was really good. So I'm just going to rewind a minute in case you missed key points. I'm going to feed my mind every day for a minimum of 30 minutes. I'm going to work out every day, even if it's 10 minutes every day, get myself out of my fear. Get clear what I wanted, find a role model, and take massive action. And my fourth step was, now let me find somebody who's worse off than I am and help them. You know, so many riches in what he says. And sometimes you just got to slow down and take it all in. But now we're good. So let's pick up where Tony and I left off. My mom taught me, make your mess your message. And that's oh, something that I've tried to do yeah. with the health challenges that I have had. Yes. And getting outside of myself and, and telling people about early detection and other yeah. things. But trying to, to help yeah. those. Because my mother said... Honey, everybody's got something. Yeah, that was totally my something, true. and that's that's what I wanted. This is why I named this podcast. Everybody's got something, and oh, it's both. Wow. Yeah, because it is true. It's like we all have yeah. something that we've overcome, but also yeah. also all have something to uh, all have you, resources because you overcome something exactly. Something that's exactly, the whole point. that is the whole point. That's, and that's always what's gotten me. You hit the nail on the head, Robin. What's always got me through my worst times, no matter what it was. 
Uh, you know, I had a tumor in my brain. Um, I've, I've had so many crazy things in my life like you, mm-hmm. where you know you don't know if you're going to live or die. And the piece that got me through each time was, if I can figure this out, I can help millions of other people to do it as well. And so, and you've done that. I told you off camera, mm-hmm. I, I've always loved and respected you so much. You're just an incredible human being. I'm not Thank saying you. that to blow smoke. Anybody knows your presence, knows mm-hmm. who you are. I don't need to say that, but it's true. But what, how you've been tested under pressure and how you've come through this and how you've inspired other people to me is beyond touching and beyond beautiful. And it's probably why, unfortunately, you had to go through those things. So you have that gift to give. And you know what? Um, I'm not one of those people that say, oh, cancer is the best thing that happened to me. No. no. To me, tragedy is not cancer. It's not uh, being broke. Yeah. It's if you don't take the time to understand why you're put in that position and what you That's can right. learn from that That's right. to better not only your situation, but that of others. And so I'm, I'm very grateful. I think it's also the athlete in me. You know, you you do. And, you, and it goes back to because Andre yeah. Agassi is the one that introduced me to you. He's oh, the one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Andre. Wow. He's one of my first early clients. Exactly. We're going back. 91, I know. Yeah. We're dating ourselves now. <laughs> but, that, <laughs> but that's how long it was. We were five though. At the time. I, oh, exactly. <laughs> but I was thinking like a world-class athlete like Andre, yeah. he needs motivation. Well, he Who, was he was really in bad shape. I was like 91, 92. He'd won Wimbledon, and then he dropped to number 32 yes. in the world. And he was literally thinking about quitting. He actually wrote it in his autobiography later mm-hmm. on. His dad was coaching him. He kept working on his swing, and I just – his wrist. And I said, let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a tennis ball perfectly? And he, you know, Andre, he's the nicest yeah, guy yeah, in the right. world. But nice people can be mean in a mean state. He's <laughs> like – no, <laughs> the attitude go first, and I had him. I had him go a member times. He hit the ball perfectly over and over again. And I said, "Okay," and I got him to feel. And I said, "Now here's my question: Were you thinking about your wrist?" He goes, "No." I said, then "How do you think focusing on your wrist is ever going to bring your game back?" He goes, "Well, how do I do it?" I said, "There's a state in you that when you're in that state, it just flows. It happens automatically." Mm. So I showed him films of when he won Wimbledon. And he walks out like prowling, owning it, looks at the other guy, pops, you know, he used to have that hair, you <laughs> That's know, right. pops his hair, looks at the guy. And then I show him at, at the French Open when he looks like, you know, somebody completely broken. And I showed him how to change his body. And he won the next week because changing your body changes your mind, changes your emotions. And then he won the next week. And then he, I think it was like third the next week. But he was back to number one within, I think it was nine weeks or 10 weeks. And he gave me unbelievable credit. Probably too much. Maybe not. Because <laughs> it really changed him. But again, you give us the tools. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. So yeah. somebody who's listening who says, you know, I'm, I'm not Andre Agassi. Yes. I, I, I'm not a world leader. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just me. Yes. What do you say to them to say you can... You can have great. You can have great in your life, whatever it is that you want in your life. You have to give up the story of what's holding you back. I always tell people the only thing keeping you from getting what you want is the story you keep telling yourself about why you don't have it. Because when you believe your limiting thoughts, they become real. I say divorce your limitations and marry the truth. The truth is (laughs) there's nothing that you can't achieve or accomplish if you're willing to put the work in. But most people, you know, they look at somebody like you, Robin, or someone who's successful in any way, and they project that you're lucky or that things just drop for you. And, and listen, there's grace in your life. There's grace in my life. But we've also done our part. And so often people, they want the result, but they won't put the effort in. Um, you know, my, people ask my wife, what's the one thing about Tony that nobody really knows? She goes, how much he prepares? I mean, I so uh, over-prepare. Hmm. I, and I could do it with my pinky today. I can get up and do 50 hours in a weekend and not even think about it. But I still want, you know, it's the difference between... Um, Emotional intelligence, you know, that the skill and cognitive ability to interact sure. versus what I would call, uh, let's say, emotional fitness. Intelligence is a capability. 
Fitness is a state of readiness. You and I both know as athletes. Mm-hmm. And you can have the capability and not execute. But if you're in state, if you are ready, if you are that place, you'll execute. So a big part of getting to where you want is learning to master your emotions, learning how to shift. Because if you can't discipline your disappointment, you know, disappointment either destroys you or drives you. True. And every great athlete, every great business person, every great human being that I've ever met they take whatever life throws at them and it drives them. It drives them to be more, to create more, to give more, to do more, whereas the majority of people settle. I'm not an idiot, by the way. I know that most people are not physically fit. Most people do not have a relationship where they not only have love but passion consistently. Most people do not have a job that they love. Most people are not financially fit, but a few people do have that life. And I'm interested in the few that do versus the many that don't because if you study the ones that do, it's like instead of studying disease – I want to study success and then show anyone how to do it because success leaves clues. I was just going to say that you beat me to it because that's something that I that you wrote <laughs> and I have it's so true and that's why I read just as much as you do. Yes. Success leaves right. clues. And it's not like I want to be the next fill in the blank. I want to be the best I can be, yes. but I love to see what people have done, people I respect. Yes. And kind Me too. of yeah, it's it's inspiring. It reminds you who you are. Why does everybody watch the Olympics? Why does you know a billion, multiple billion people, however many people watch the Olympics? Because uh-huh. I think at an unconscious level, there's greatness in every one of us, and when we see that at an unconscious level, it's a calling to remind yourself we're more than who we are. Why do people get emotional about someone they don't even know when they watch them perform? Because yeah. our spirit yeah. is being called to be more, and more might be more as a mother, more as a father, more as a business person, more happy. More more joyous. I always tell people, my job is to help people have a more extraordinary life, no matter how magnificent it is. And to do that, I show them, you got to do it on your terms, right? Mm, right your idea right. of magnificent may not be True. mine. I'm not telling people to be like me. But whatever it is, it requires two skills. The science of achievement, and it's a science. Like money is a science. There are rules. If you violate them, you're going to be have financial mm-hmm. stress. If you align with them, you'll have abundance. There are rules of the body. We're all different biochemically, but there's certain fundamentals you and I both know. You can't violate them. You're going to have disease or you're going to have lack of energy. If you follow them, you're going to have energy. But the second skill is even more important because I've met so many achievers over the years. They call me in to do something with their business. They got a multi-billion dollar business. They want to turn something around. But while I'm there, I realize why I'm really there is they really are unhappy. They're not fulfilled. So the second skill and the more important skill is the art of fulfillment. And it's an art, Robin, because... What turn you on or make sight you might be mm-hmm. different than me. If you go to a you know art show here in New York, and I'm sure you've done this, you look at this painting and and you go, what? I'm not seeing it. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not, not seeing it. it. How what? much is it? They go $10 million. You go, $10 million. It's in the eye of the beholder, and, and Tony. And that's the point. The it's fulfillment the... is different for everybody. Yes. I mean, one of my major commitments and missions is to show people how to enjoy where you are because no matter what you get, no matter how much you achieve, it won't make you happy. The only thing that's going to make you happy is deciding that you're going to be happy no matter what happens. It's a decision. Or if something happens to you physically, you can be miserable and be overwhelmed. And of course, you're going to feel those for a moment. You can live there or you can break out of it. You're not going to get healthy being miserable. You're not going to come up with a solution while you're angry and freaked out. But you will in a beautiful state of being. That doesn't mean you're happy. It might just mean you're driven or you're creative or you're grateful or you're prayerful mm-hmm. or you're hungry. But answers can be found in beautiful states versus suffering states of frustration or overwhelm or why me. 
uh, after my dear father died, he was a Tuskegee Airman, real patriarch oh, of our family. Yes, yes, wow. yes, yes, real patriarch of our family. I know, I'm very wow. proud of that. Uh, I was born in Tuskegee, not when he was there as a Tuskegee Airman, when he came back, not in the wow. 40s, but when he came back as a instructor. Yes. Wow. And uh, when he passed, it was just so devastating, Colonel mm. Lawrence E. Roberts. Wow. And my mother said, um, children, we can have happy sorrow. Mm. We're going to be sorrowful, of course, that score, but of we can we can find the joy that he brought mm. into our lives, and I'll never forget that. He says, "She said, choose happy sorrow." And people think that well, that doesn't mix, and I'm like, "Yeah, oh, it, it does. does. It absolutely it does. does. It does." What a brilliant mama you have! Yes, I do. Oh, gosh, I have Is a lot she's of still alive? Oh, bless her heart! No, she passed right before my um, my transplant. Oh, it was okay. really, it was like a really. But you know what, Tony? You know what she did. She wasn't. She was not well. Yeah. And um, I, I came home, and I'm about to have the transplant. And it's almost like she knew I wouldn't have my transplant until I knew that she was going to be better. Wow. And the doctor was like, she could stay. She had a stroke. She could stay in that state for forever. Wow. Uh, I was alone with her with the healthcare worker, and and my uh, healthcare worker was saying, you know, your mom. She becomes very aware in the middle of the night, and and uh, we have these talks, and so she's saying things that I, I know that my mother has talked to her because she's she knows stories that only yeah. my mother could have told yeah. her. Yeah. And then she said, um. But your mom, she's not sure if she was always there for you kids. And so I went on this whole thing. Of, oh, my gosh. You know, she didn't have cookies waiting for us, but yeah. she was a great mom. Da, da, da. More important things. She took her last breath. It's almost like she waited to hear that she wow. was a good mother. And wow. But this is the beauty of it. It's like she said, daughter, I'm going to go where you don't have to worry about me and I don't have to worry about you because she knew I wasn't going to leave. Wow. I was not going to leave that, that home. But, um, but everybody's got something. Everything yeah. is because of... My mother, and she always loves surprises too. So, I'm going to segue she here. Th- 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 this is a little fishbowl. <laughs> don't get me talking about my mama. Well, I invited Tony to play the game we call Blink Don't Think to pick a random question from the fishbowl, something he had to answer out loud without any preparation. What's your greatest sexual fantasy? Okay, that's yours. <laughs> No, I'm kidding. That's not what it said. <laughs> I'm about to say, what? How'd that get in the fishbowl? Somebody put oh, something in the fishbowl. Uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. I want you to have this one because I want to know this one from you. All right. Okay. Name the first thing you do to jumpstart your day and the last thing you do to get a good night's sleep. He has some interesting answers. <laughs> I really believe that most people are wired for frustration or sadness or overwhelm because they've done it so much. And so what I do is I wire myself for the happiness and I do this simple rule. And so the first 10 minutes of my day, I did it this morning always, I get up. I do this physical change to my body. It has to do with movement and breath. It puts me in a great state. And then for 10 minutes, I do three and a half minutes where I just focus on three things I'm grateful for. But the reason I do that is the two emotions that mess up your life most is fear and anger. Mm. And when you're grateful, there is no fear. And when you're grateful, there is no anger. Everything is a gift. And so I do that for three minutes. Then I do a three-minute prayer, which is uh, asking that I be, my body be healed and strengthened so I can continue to give and do more. I pray for my family. I send the energy out. I feel the energy coming in. And I think of three things I want to achieve. But by having a 10-minute minimum, there's no excuse not to do it. The secret of getting ahead is just getting started. That's a great way. And yeah, and that's a great way to start your day. But thank you. Everybody's got something. And thank you for sharing your something with us, Tony Robbins. Thank you very much. You're a beautiful, beautiful son. Love you very much. Right back at you tenfold. Yep, a little bit of Tony Robbins time, and you feel ready to take your game to that next level. So we just heard from Tony Robbins about what it takes to discover and even recover yourself. You've got to take your game to another level. And my next two guests learned all about that when they participated in a very moving and uplifting event. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Invictus Games, game on! This past May, I was honored to be at the Invictus Games. We are Invictus. And if you don't know what these are, here's a summary. The games honor the fighting spirit of service members, celebrating what they can achieve after suffering injuries, both in the line of duty and in civilian life. Inspiring recovery and supporting rehabilitation through the power of sports. In other words, they rock. These games are the realization of a dream of a British service member, none other than, are you ready for this? England's Prince Harry. And listen, here's what he told me when I asked why these games mattered so much to him. When we look past the, the amputees, when we look past the burns, they're still the same people. And to be able to call them all my comrades, friends, we all share something. We share that uniform, we share the training, we share, in some cases, Afghanistan. It's very special. So the word Invictus means unconquered. And let me tell you, the men and women I met at these games, they're unbeatable. Not just athletically, but in spirit and courage. You are all Invictus. Spread the word. Never stop fighting. And do all you can to lift up everyone around you. That was Prince Harry in the closing ceremony of the Invictus Games, where over 500 military competitors came from all over the world, including Michael Smith. Uh, I'm track and field guy. Um, that's kind of like my, not my background, but that's what I'm doing out here. So that's what I'm training for. And his friend, Anna Menzies. I'm doing track, swimming, um, cycling, and archery. All right, that's a lot of sports. But hang on, that's not all they do. Listen to this. You know, me and Anna both are uh, skeleton athletes. So um, Explain that. So skeleton um, is a, are you familiar with bobsledding? Yes, of course. So skeleton is head first downhill. You know, lose his feet, head first and skeleton. So um, Face first. Yeah, face, yeah head first. <laughs> so head first, so skeleton. So, um, and I met Anna this past summer um, at our Army trials. And just because of her tenacity and her will to fight, and um, of course we have so much in common, but mm-hmm. um, I just, you know, every now and then you meet somebody and you just think, man, she has it or he has it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I sat down and I talked to her and I was like, look, this is something that you might want to look at. Is it dangerous? Absolutely. I've broken my ribs and <laughs> stitches and stuff. But so we're motorcyclists. You said skeleton. You're from Texas. What do you know about ice and all, you know? I had a coach approach me about attempting to, to do skeleton. I Googled it, <laughs> saw that it was fast and dangerous, and why not? Let's you, try it. And you, it was just one of those things that you either hate it or you love it. I just fell absolutely in love with it. So Michael said he got so infatuated with the sport, he wanted his friend Anna involved with it. Hard to imagine. I'll explain why in a minute. Let me just say that first, he asked me to picture Anna in action. It looks like Anna going down the ice track at 70 plus miles an hour. 
It's not normal to see. I'm sorry, you said 70? 70 plus, yes, ma'am. Oh, head first. Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Uh, I'll, I'll stick to hoops. Yeah, I can't quite see myself doing the skeleton thing. But it wasn't just the description of the sport that made my heart pound. It's what I saw in Michael's eyes. An absolute fearlessness as he talked about danger. And then there was honest sense of humor when she joined in. It can't get any worse than losing a whole leg. We just wanted to be able to show people, like, yeah, we've been knocked down, but we've, we're still fighting that fight. You know, we're not out of the game. There it is again, that game metaphor Tony Robbins likes so much. And this time, staying in the game and taking it to the next level is also about learning what they've gained from what they've lost physically. Here, Michael point-blank explains why that applies to skeleton racing. It's not a sport that you see an amputee doing. That's not normal. How, how were you injured? Um, I was... Uh, injured in a motorcycle accident. I was driving my motorcycle in town and a truck ran a red light and I was broadsided. And soon after, I had to amputate my leg. Mm. And Michael? Um, similar story. That's why I mean, I was recently back from deployment, motorcycle as well. Um, a lady was texting and driving. She rear-ended me from the... She rear-ended me and it threw me over the guardrail. And uh, before I could hit the ground, another vehicle came by and knocked my arm off. So it sent me right on the spot. And so both of you, uh, distracted drivers, yes, caused your, your injuries. Um, I think that's an important message for people to know. Absolutely. That when you're behind the wheel, you've got to be paying attention. You have to. Definitely. Oh, well, I'm, I'm so sorry for, for what you had to endure and so proud of how... You look at that beautiful smile that you have right now. Um, how important are these games to be able to to show your vast abilities that you have? First of all, it's a, it's a blessing to even be a part of something like this, just to know uh, where you've come from, uh, where you're at, and potentially where you're going. Uh, not only as an athlete, but as an advocate for other for other so, so service members. Definitely. Not, you know, not just physically, but, you know, mentally, you know, you have the invisible wounds as well, so. Invisible wounds may be the most difficult of all to heal. Here's Prince Harry describing the emotional injuries these wounded warriors often suffer. For a lot of these guys, once they were forced to leave the military, they, they, didn't, they didn't have any recognition as part of being part of a team mm -hmm. again. So actually wearing a uniform of sorts, to be able to wear your national flag again on your, on your left chest or on your left arm, is such a massive thing for these guys. And though it's true the Invictus athletes struggle with these invisible wounds, there are also very visible signs of optimism, bravery, and something else Anna explains really well. I think the first word that comes to everyone's mind is camaraderie. Mm. Definitely, because, you know, being part of, of a unit, for instance, a battalion, um, overseas or stateside, whatever it is, you always have that camaraderie. You always have someone who, no matter what, has your back. And that you guys are going to celebrate together and you're going to suck it together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sport is a lot like that. You celebrate it and, and, and it sucks sometimes. <laughs> and, it, and it's nice to share that experience with other people okay. who understand it and relish it the same way that you do. And there's not a lot of people like that in the world. Right. And I would imagine when you use the word camaraderie, that's something in the military. 
You guys, Absolutely. you all always have each other's backs. I know that you're still in the service, yes, Michael. Yes, uh, Anna, you're not. And you kind of, I guess you would crave that. You miss that. And so you have that again, don't you? Yes. Yeah. And in, like, it's an indescribable. It really is. Yeah. Michael, I know you said that you lost your arm for a reason. What do you mean by that? Why'd you say that? Um, every time I speak or I go to a speaking engagement and people ask me, you know, what has been the le- what's the lesson you've learned? Or and I tell people all the time, and I'm pretty sure maybe Anna feels the same way. I don't know, but losing my arm was probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me in my life ever. And it's so weird because I was right hand dominant, you know, and playing basketball in college and for the army is. Um, but it, what it did is, is it really it really uh, reestablished my life with my family. Um, <clears throat> it's okay. It's emotional. It's your fault. No, no. It is my family. Uh, absolutely with God because, you know, without him, nothing is possible. That's my beliefs. Anyway, Amen. But, um, and then with my daughter, I have a 13-year-old daughter, so it was really important for me to show her what um, a role model can be. Um, I feel like in this time, we don't have a lot of strong, upbeat, positive, normal role models that are not athletes or not musicians or anything like that. So um, it just it just turned my life around. I didn't learn how to swim until after I lost my arm. I turned into a swimmer. I started cycling. Anna, was you cycling before you lost your leg? No. I um, Even though I swam a little bit in high school, I've never really considered myself particularly athletic. And it took, you know, losing a limb for me to push those, ba- those physical boundaries and say, what can my prosthetic do? Um, and I'm still looking. I'm tr- still trying to find out what it can't do. I now take cycling super serious. I'm an extreme cyclist. And um, throwing a shot, putting a dish, like those are things that I learned to do after I lost my arm. And I just remember um, being in the hospital and, uh, you know, you go through that whole, why me? I'm a good person. Why did this have to happen to me? Um, and my dad told me, um, he was like, well, my mother and my father told me, they was like, you know, Mike, um, God has a plan for you. But, you know, when you when immediate, when something immediately impacts your life, you're not trying to look for the positive right away. It's that why me stage. And uh, my mom and my father was like, Mike, God has a plan for you. You can't see it just yet, but just be patient. If you wait on him, he'll, he'll come through for you. And um, it, took, it took a while. Um, you know, you go through that whole resentment stage, why me, you're really bitter. Um, How'd you get through that? Oh, my, my family, family and friends. Um, I have a super strong mother. My mother is strong. She's probably the strongest person I know. Um, she's been through a lot with, you know, just me, my, you know, my family and things of that nature. She, she's the backbone of everything I've ever done in my life. So she's the reason I got through what I've done. But, um, you know, she told me, you know, wait on it. God has a plan, this, that, and the other. And long, not too long after that, I figured out, like, okay, well, my, God only lets things happen to you that he knows you can handle. Look. This is what happened to me, but this is what I'm doing now. Mm. I can't tell you how to do it, but I can just show you what I did, and hopefully you can learn from it. Oh, strong mom. Did you have the same experience that Michael had, the, the why me moment when the accident first happened? I mean, not to say that I was um, immediately accepting, but I did not have a why me moment. In fact, my brother said, quote, of course, Anna is the first person in the family to lose her leg. <laughs> what do you mean by that? What, 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 what'd your brother 
you mean by that? <laughs> well, because I was the first person in my family to join the military. You know, I was... There was a lot of firsts right. for me. I'm very, I guess, adventurous or whatever. Curious, I'll say. Mm-hmm. And um, so there were some hard moments, mo- mostly of, of independence, of losing an, a certain amount of my independence. I was more reliant on people than I was comfortable with. And, you know, I had to become more patient than I naturally am. And, um, again, it was my mom uh, was a huge part of that. We got a lot closer than I had. I mean, because I was forced to rely on her. Whereas mm-hmm. before, I, I, was, I, was, I was very adamant about being independent and making sure I did everything on my own. And I kind of didn't have a choice at this point. And so we got really close. And just having her in the room dulled my pain sometimes that I had from the amputation. Something I was really surprised about. And, you know, like I said, that, like, like Mike said, I would not have known that if I hadn't have lost my leg. Um, it's, you know, sometimes when something's taken away from you is when you start to appreciate things. Anna, you said that for your accident to happen in San Antonio, that was the best place, you said, for it to happen. Why? It was fortunate in that, first of all, there were two people who came to my aid immediately. And I'm pretty sure one of them was a fellow veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, he left before, you know, the scene before I could talk to him or anything, but he immediately put a tourniquet on me. And we understood each other right away. The tourniquet wasn't working. I was going into shock. I recognized I was going into shock because of my army training, something I never thought I would actually use, you know. And I told him to bring the tourniquet up. And we kind of had this, I could barely talk. And he was like, are you sure? And I'm telling him, like, yes, I'm a veteran. No, meaning I know that if you bring it up, I'm going to lose everything below that. And so as soon as he did, I was okay. Um, from there, since they knew I was a veteran, they took me to Brook Army Medical Base, which is the equivalent of, um, or like a southern equivalent of Walter Reed, specializing in amputations. I had the best surgeon. Um, I had access to Center for the Intrepid, which is a, an all-inclusive rehabilitation center with occupational physical therapy, recreational therapy, um, and veteran you know, outreach, anything you could possibly imagine goes through there. And it was through there that I found um, you know, triathlon, adaptive sports, and all of those things. So it really was a catalyst. Uh, being in a military town was, um, is basically why I'm, I'm sitting here right now. Why did you want to join the military? I came from a very small town and um, I had no college fund. I didn't do that great in school. And I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to learn how to be responsible. And I wanted to serve something better, bigger than I am, to feel part of something great. <laughs> and what were you do- your duties in the military? I was in military intelligence. I was a Spanish linguist. Mm-hmm. Right. And Michael? Why did you want to join the military? I didn't have all the things that I wanted growing up as far as like, you know, just the whole, um, you know, coming home and my mom struggling. So and I felt like at the point at at that time, uh, growing up in a single parent household, you're literally the man of the house when you're like 10. Right. (laughs) So I I needed to do a media impact. And I felt like uh, the military was that way for me. Um, And I was just going to do it for four years and be done with it. But then. How long have you been in now? 17 years. 17 years? Yes, ma'am. And you're making history as the only active duty serviceman in U.S. military history. Yes, ma'am. To serve without an arm. What made you decide to stay in the military after your accident? Just wanting to be that person that people can be like, oh, well, pff, 
if Mike is over here doing a one-arm push-up or if he's over here running or he's still doing this and doing that, then why can't I? So, I mean, I feel like I owe it to myself, to my daughter, to my country. You know, I fought for this country. I fought for that flag that I carry around. So, I mean, why not finish? Let's, let's just do the whole thing. Yeah, my dad was one of the most patriotic men I've ever been around. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just when you're in the military, the, the pride that you have in, oh, yeah. in serving your country. I, I wasn't a super patriotic person when I joined the military. Like, I did it for personal reasons, I guess you could say. And then as you, as you learn the history and as you deploy and go to other countries and see what an honor it is to be an American and live in this great country, then you start to be like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely proud to be an American. I like, there's no, there's no better place to live. So there's a lot of heartfelt patriotism and astounding bravery. But what these guys didn't fess up to was something else something super obvious once you see them in action but people need to know that you guys are competitive oh yeah you know you're not just here like oh this is nice where does that come from it's being a soldier it's being in the military where they, you're groomed to be competitive you go fight for this country there's no you can't be passive so we take that same spirit into being a competitor you can't be passive hey you're our ally got it got it great but you're on our soil so we supposed to take it home mm. That's how I go. What are you hoping to get out of the games, Anna? Um, I guess overall, it's for me, it's, it is, I mean, it comes down to camaraderie. You talked about the competition, but that's part of the camaraderie, is pushing each other, you know. Um, so as much as the U.S. team are pushing each other, we're also pushing the U.K. to do better, and they're pushing us to do better. And it's those, the cyclical effect that, I don't know, that I think benefits all of us really well. Mm-hmm. It just shows there's something about sports. There's something about athletics that just brings everyone together. Yeah, um, yeah. And what is it, do you feel, that it is about um, being able to showcase your abilities through the Invictus Games and letting spectators come and, and see you uh, just being, being an athlete? What do you think mm-hmm. that that says yeah i mean sports is that one common ground that everybody can relate to you know um sports is that one thing especially for veterans that are injured veterans that it challenges us to do better it challenges us to be another person or a better person um and a lot of times for adaptive sports it it makes us heal faster Mm -hmm. you know it does both mentally physically emotionally um, and being able to showcase that on, in this type of venue on, worldwide is, is huge. Um, we're getting an opportunity to represent our country, not, as, not only as veterans, soldiers, but as athletes as well. So how many different people can say that? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think that's like, the, that's like one of the biggest honors you can have. We fought for this country as, a, as soldiers. Now we're fighting for this country as an athlete. You know what I mean? Not, there's not a lot of athletes out there that can say that. And yeah. we take that for, that's, that's an honor, that's a pride for us. You don't take it for granted, do you, Anna? The thing that stands out to me is this really interesting mix of competitive, like you're competing with people, but then you're helping them out, literally helping them out at the same time. I'm trading prosthetic information with people from other countries. Oh, have you tried this? Oh, here's, here's the special sock. See if that works. This is what I've tried in the past and it's worked. You should talk to this person or this program. And then 
inevitably, because I've, I've been in you know this adaptive sports world for a couple of years, I end up passing that information along to new amputees. I, I, um, I roomed with another amputee for the skeleton sled camp, and I was able to pass some things on to her, and now she's doing outstanding. Um, so, so I think I like, I like that, that connection. Even it's, a, it's like a very tense kind of connection because you're competing with each other all the time. Right. But it's, it comes from a place of, of common, of good common good in all of us. Mm. If you're like everybody has a bad day, if you're having a, a bad day for whatever reason, what gets you out of it? Um, I just remember, I just remember where I came from. I just remember where I was at. But we have a huge support. We have a huge community, though. At the end of the day, um, when I'm not having a good day, all I need to do is just, you know, think to myself, like, okay, like it's, it's really not that serious. Let's, let's, you know, let's 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 get back to who you are and let's pull that ego back out for everybody to see, such as Anna just said. <laughs> you know, I'll just keep it moving. And what gets you through the dark moments, Anna? Um, I, I know that I've done harder before, even if it's just a hard day. I've know I know what I've done in the past. I know what I've done in the army. I know what I've done, you know, during my surgeries. I know what I've done after my amputation, and I've seen the struggles of of everyone around me too. You know, people who are just going through their amputation, or people who are having a really hard time accepting it. And they ha- they have their good days and they have their bad days, and they're still here and they're still pushing. And 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 it's not even so much like oh they did it I can do it. It's more like I'm not in this by myself. We're all in it together, and if I don't want to get up, that's okay. But I'm gonna let I'm gonna reach out and tell someone, hey, you know what? I'm having a bad day, and they might be having a bad day too. And we're gonna have a bad day together, and then we're gonna get up, and we're gonna we're gonna get up the next day, and we're gonna hit it again. Yeah, my trick is if we all have a bad day. I just try not to string them together. Mm, yeah. You know, consecutive bad days is never good. Yeah, just just accept that that it is. Everybody's got something, and yes. we've talked to. Many different people who have had different challenges and mm-hmm. things that they've had to overcome. What do you say to someone who, and we don't know what their something is, but they're listening to you uh, and know the the injuries that you have um, endured, and yet you're positive, you're upbeat. What do you say to that person who, you know, they want that same feeling. They want to be able to get back up as you all have. Anna? Actually, losing my leg was not the hardest thing I've done in my life. That's not the hardest thing I've endured in my life. It's the heartbreaks for me that were so, that took every ounce of strength to pull myself out of. That has, oh, those are my proudest moments, is when I came out of those really dark places. So, um, and I know that other people experience that, have experienced that same thing. So when they tell me, I don't think I could go on if I lost my leg, I let them know that I know that they could. And Michael? I learned that at the end of the day, like, despite of what you're going through, somebody else always has it worse, you know? And um, like Anna said, like, people come up to us all the time, like, man, you inspire me and People come up for other countries, man, Mike, or Anna, like, you're on a skeleton team? That's crazy. Man, you're like, I want to be like you when I grew up. 
I don't know. I love my life right now. I'm living my life. I have a good time. We have a good time. Yeah. Um, Anna's a really hard critic. Don't let that smile <laughs> fool you. People, y'all can't see it. Don't let that little pretty smile fool you. Oh, I don't, I don't oh, pull any punches with this she guy. She does it. He's got, he's got an ego that can take it. Really? <laughs> really? Oh, she, she went there. Mike, she went there. She oh, yeah. 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 If if only talking smack were a sport, man, I would be <laughs> gold medal. He'd gold medal. A, a gold medal. Yeah, yeah, he'd, right, yeah, here. He'd, right yeah. There. <laughs> I have to say that you two are shining examples of of what it takes to simply live your life and to realize that the tragedy is not losing a limb. The tragedy is is if you don't take time to understand the purpose and the meaning. And something that my mom always said, make your mess your message, mm-hmm. that whatever you're going through, others can learn from it. And I mm-hmm. learned so much listening to both of you. Uh, bring home the gold. Absolutely. Cool. It's coming. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Anna, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you for sharing your something with us. Absolutely. Blessings. One final note. Anna won two bronze medals in the Invictus Games, both in bike races. Michael did not medal, but I gotta say, he wins a gold medal for me for all he's done for others. That's it for today's show. I hope what you just heard was as inspiring for you as it was for me. And before I sign off, I just want to say I'm touched by the outpouring of stories from you, our listeners of Everybody's Got Something. So grateful to all of you for taking the time to write about your somethings. Just know that we're listening, we hear you, and we care. So let's keep sharing. If you've gone through a something, we'd love to know about it. Write us at robinpodcast.com. Meanwhile, become a subscriber of our podcast. And please, if you're into what we're doing, take a moment to write a review on iTunes. It really does help us. And many thanks to my podcast posse, John, Steve, Josh, what up, Andy? Evelyn, Alex, Gabe, Danielle, Rennie, Ida, Jade, Debbie, and Julian. Until next time, you know what's coming. Hot mess, still blessed. I'm Robin Roberts.